We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Matthew 2. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled that the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Gracious God, would you help us to believe this morning uh, that we are here not by accident, but that we are here because you have brought us here and you have good news for us. And you alone, Lord, have the wisdom to speak into our lives. You alone have words of life. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear now when we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Um, My name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you are new, we're so glad that you're here. I'd love to get to meet you after the service. We are in the season of Advent. And Advent is a season of four weeks leading up to Christmas, and Christians all over the world celebrate this season. And this Advent for our sermon series, we're in a series called, He Shall Be Called. Um, This actually comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which says this, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the God that we find in Christmas. A God who is a wonderful counselor. And a God who is mighty. And a God who is an everlasting Father. And a God who is a Prince of Peace. And if you've never known that kind of God, that is what is on offer to you today. Last week we looked at Wonderful Counselor. And this week we're looking at Mighty God. Now what does it mean 
that Jesus is mighty God. Well, I want us to consider two things this morning. It means that there is hope for the world, and it means that there's hope for you and me. Hope for the world and hope for you and me. So first, it means that there's hope for the world. Now, this passage we just read, it's part of the Christmas story. Um, But it's not the part of the Christmas story people typically think about. When we think of Christmas, uh, we think think of the shepherds and the angels and, and the wise men and the baby. All of this stuff, this is what we think of. We think of all the stuff that looks great in a nativity set. Have you ever seen this part of the Christmas story in the nativity set? I doubt it. It'd be a very depressing nativity set. But this is People would think you're very strange if they walked into your house and saw this on your, on your mantle. But this is, this is part of the Christmas story. And it is very dark, actually, so we need to pay attention to it. Now, what's going on here? This, this passage is actually called The Slaughter of the Innocents. Let me give you a little bit of backstory. Um, after Jesus was born, the wise men saw the star, and they came to Jerusalem, and they asked, they asked Herod, who was the king, Where is the king that has been born? And so Herod pulled together all of the religious scholars and they said, the prophecy says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod says to the wise men, go to Bethlehem. And when you find him, let me know because I want to come and worship him as well. Of course, that is not at all Herod's intention. Herod's intention was to kill him. And you see, the wise men knew this, and so they never went back to Herod. And when Herod realized this, he became angry. So angry, in fact, that verse 16 says he ordered all male children under two to be killed. Meanwhile, in verse 13, an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream and warns him not to go back to Jerusalem, but to take the child and to flee from their home to Egypt. Now, this is, this is probably the darkest part of the Christmas narratives in the Gospels. Think about how dark this is. Think about Herod. I mean, this is so evil. It is so violent. It is such an abuse of power. Think about Joseph and Mary and the baby. They are refugees fleeing oppression. They have been ripped apart from their families. Think about the parents whose children were murdered. I mean, this is is so dark. There is so much grief in this story. Why is this in the Christmas story? Well, one, it's there because it's what actually happened. But two, it is there because it is the whole point of Christmas. Christmas says that Jesus came into a dark and hopeless world in order to bring hope to the world. You see, lots of people get very sentimental at Christmas. You know, Christmas is chestnuts roasting on an open fire. And it's Jack Frost nipping at your nose. And it's Mommy kissing Santa Claus under the mistletoe, which is very, a very weird thing to write a song about. Um, and Christmas is peppermint lattes. 
And you see, all of this stuff is very sentimental, and that works for a little while. But eventually, life gets hard, and life gets sad, and things that you never thought would happen in your life come crashing into your life. And sentimentality doesn't work anymore. And some of you, this is right where you are this Christmas season. There is great suffering in your life. A lot of tears. A lot of heartache. Some of us will have empty seats at our Christmas table this year that we didn't have last year. And you see, in the Bible, culturally, we get so sentimental about Christmas, but in the Bible, Christmas is anything but sentimental. It's actually the most realistic way of looking at life. It's most honest about the world. It says, yes, there is joy in the world, but there is also deep pain and suffering and injustice. And the world is a dark place that desperately needs hope. And friends, the radical claim of Christianity is that Jesus came to bring it. Now, here's the question. How does he do it? How does Jesus bring hope to a hopeless world? Well, in Isaiah chapter 9, where this whole sermon series is based on, when it says that a child will be born and a son will be given and he shall be called mighty God, the word mighty there in the Hebrew means warrior. Isaiah is saying, listen to this, Jesus will be a warrior God. And that promise is one that the Israelites desperately needed at that time in their lives. Because in Isaiah chapter 9, they are under attack from the Assyrians. You think Herod is evil? Herod is child's play compared to the Assyrians. This was a brutal empire. One of the most brutal empires the world has ever known. I read a quote this week from one of the Assyrian kings. He said this about one of his military victories. In strife and conflict, I besieged and conquered the city. I killed 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off of others their noses, their ears, their extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I've made one pile of the living and one of heads, and I hung their heads on trees around the city. I read another quote from another Assyrian king who said he burned the bodies of adolescent boys and girls of his enemies. It is so dark. And you see, in Isaiah 9, God is saying, I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you defenseless. I will send a mighty warrior who is going to bring to account all of the evil and all of the violence and all of the oppression. And you see, this is the way that Jesus brings hope for the world. You know what this is? This is actually a promise of judgment. How does Jesus bring hope to the world? You know how he brings it? He brings it through the promise of judgment that one day he will make all that has gone wrong right. That all evil and injustice will be held to account. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, I did not come on earth to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. You see, some of us in this room 
we hear this and we think, judgment? What is hopeful about a God of judgment? I can believe in a God of love. I can get on board with that. But a God of judgment? Listen, for as problematic as it is to believe in a God of judgment, if you, if you, actually, if you actually really think about it, it is even more problematic to not believe in a God of judgment. Howard Thurman, who was one of Dr. Martin Luther King's predecessors, he was an African-American scholar and minister, and in 1947, he was giving a lecture at Harvard University. This is pre-civil rights era. And in his lecture, he said this. He said, can you imagine a slave saying that I and all of my children and all of my grandchildren are consigned to live lives of endless brutality and grinding poverty. Can you imagine saying that there is no judgment day in which any wrongdoing will ever be put to right? This is what Thurman is saying. He's saying if there is no judgment, if you and I live in a universe where there is no final reckoning for evil, then what hope is there for the world? What hope is there for the oppressed? What hope is there for the abused? What hope is there who have been victims of cruelty and violence? See, think of it this way. How could God even be a God of love if he wasn't a God of judgment? And I just want to suggest to you that if this makes no sense to you, it's probably because you've lived a relatively sheltered life. It's probably because your life has been relatively easy compared to other people, that you've never really experienced violation. You've never really experienced oppression because to believe in a God of love but not a God of judgment is a luxury that only the privileged and protected can hold to. Which I think is probably why in secular America, we live in the most comfortable country in the world, this is such a popular notion. But if you go almost any other place in the world, they will tell you that the idea that, there is not, that God is not a God of judgment is absolutely ludicrous. We need a God of judgment. We need a God who gets angry in circumstances like Matthew chapter 2. We need a mighty God. We need a warrior God. It is the only way that there can be hope for the world, but it is also the only way that there can be hope for you and me. And that's the second point. See, it is so easy to look at this passage and go, look how terrible Herod is. And he is terrible. He does wicked, evil things. But if you just look at this passage that way, you're missing the whole point of this story. You know, when Herod first hears that Jesus has been born, Matthew tells us, earlier in the chapter, actually, earlier in chapter 2, that Herod's first reaction is, Matthew says, he was disturbed. Now, why was Herod disturbed? Well, it's pretty simple. If you're the king, and someone else shows up, and everybody's saying, that's the king, what is your response going to be? You're not going to be excited. You're not going to be neutral. You're going to be opposed, and you're going to do everything you can to get rid of that person because they are a threat to your power, 
to your control, to your autonomy, and to your ability to live however you want to live. Do you know that Christianity says this is the story of every single person who has ever lived? It's your story and it's my story. The Christian story says that we were made by God and we were made to be with God and we were made to flourish under his gracious, loving, and wise authority which centered around love for him and love for others. But rather than being content to be with God, we wanted to be our own gods. We wanted to call the shots. And rather than centering our lives on love for God and love for others, we have made them centered around ourselves. And you see, if you know your own heart, here's what you know. You know that there is a little Herod deep inside you. There is a part of you that says, nobody tells me what to do. Nobody tells me how to live. I mean, this is, this is actually the mantra of culture. Culture says, you do you and I do me. No one can tell me what to do with my money, with my sex life, with my politics. No one can tell me how to live. You see, there is, if we're honest with ourselves, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are born with a posture of rebellion towards God. There is this inherent resistance in every human heart. And so rather than flourishing under God's wisdom and authority, which is how we were built to live, we seek to go our own way. And you know what it leads to? It leads to chaos in our lives. It leads to fragmentation in our lives. It leads to all sorts of struggles in our lives. And I'll give you three quick ones that we see right here in this passage in Herod. Let me give them to you. Fear, envy, and anger. All three of them right here in Herod. Fear. Herod is the king, but he is so afraid. You know what he's afraid of? He is afraid of losing his power. What are you afraid of? That's a really important question to answer for yourself. You never really understand yourself until you actually understand your fear and your anxiety. So much of our fear gets traced back to the things that we are trying to hold on to or that we are scared to let go of or that we are afraid might get taken away from us. How about envy? Herod Think about what Herod has. He has possessions. He has incredible wealth. He has incredible status, but he is envious of someone who might have more. He lives his life by comparison. Have you ever known that struggle? Have you ever found yourself looking around at other people who have more than you have? You see, when our lives are marked by comparison, we either live in fear or we live in envy. We either live clinging to what we have because we're afraid of losing it, or we live in envy of what others have because we feel like what we have is never enough. How about anger? You know, it's so easy to read this passage and you go, well, I've never, I've never killed anyone. But along comes Jesus. 
in Matthew chapter 5, and he says, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. But I tell you that if you were angry with your brother or sister, you have committed murder. Jesus says, if you know what it's like to hold a grudge, if you know what it's like to hold on to resentment, if you know what it's like to have contempt for a person or for a people group based on their race or their socioeconomic status or the way that they vote because it is different than you, Jesus says there is this little tiny Herod deep inside of you. It's, it's, it's in seed form. And you see, if we're honest, all the things that we see inherited in this passage, we see in our own lives as well. Are, are you able to admit that? Friends, let me tell you, the person preaching the sermon this morning struggles deeply with fear, envy, and anger. There are weeks where I feel like I live in these things. Can you admit this about yourself? Can you be this honest? You see, if you can, it creates a massive dilemma. And here's the dilemma. If Jesus is not a mighty God, if he isn't a a warrior who has come to judge sin and evil, what hope is there for the world? Evil wins, injustice wins, the oppressor wins. But if he is a mighty God, what hope is there for you and me? The same things inherited are in us. And you know what the answer to that dilemma is? It's Christmas. It's Christmas. At the end of this passage, Herod dies. And Joseph and Mary, they come back from Egypt to Israel. However, Herod gets, or, uh, Joseph gets warned in another dream that Herod's son is now reigning. And so verse 23 says that he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he, meaning Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. Now that's really interesting because our our sermon series this Advent is he shall be called. Isaiah 9 says he shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. But here in Matthew 2, Matthew says he shall be called a Nazarene. Now why all this emphasis on Nazareth? Why is that significant? It's significant because Nazareth was a nowhere place. In fact, it was so small, it was so obscure that we actually know relatively little about it today. Nazareth is like, when I was thinking this week, there's a town, I can't remember the name of it, some of you will, but if you drive up to Tahoe, you pass through this little town and can't remember the name of it, but there's like a population sign as you're entering in. It's like population 250 people. And it's like you blink and you have passed through that town. It is a nowhere town. Hopefully none of you are from there this morning. I'm hopefully not insulting you. It's a lovely town, I'm sure. I've just never really spent any time there. See, that's Nazareth. That is Nazareth. In John chapter 1, when the disciple Philip goes to a skeptic named Nathaniel, and he says, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. You know what, you know what Nathaniel says? He says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? 
When I was doing RU, a college ministry at Berkeley, this is how people from the South used to talk to me about Berkeley. Berkeley? Can anything good come from Berkeley? And what's really interesting is when you read the Gospels, this this whole Nazareth thing keeps showing up. Whenever we find Jesus' name on the lips of those who want to give it a derogatory spin, you know what they call him? Jesus of Nazareth. The demons do it in Mark chapter 1. The soldiers who crucify him do it in John chapter 18. And when he is hung on a cross, Pilate has a a, a sign hung over his head that reads, Jesus of Nazareth. Why Nazareth? I don't know if you've heard, but there's this thing going on called the World Cup. And uh, it's not good for my sermon writing because I really just want to watch soccer. Um, so I had to like really, you know, push this one out this week. But uh, I read there was this article um, in the New York Times this week. It was called, some of you might have read it, it was called When VIP Isn't Exclusive Enough. So at this World Cup, there is something even more exclusive than VIP seats. They are VVIP. And I don't even know what the V stands for, but clearly it is extra special, okay? Listen to this. You can't even see the VVIP entrance from the other entrances. To get to the VVIP entrance, you take your own little road, and there's a red carpet when you go to walk in. It's, it's, so, it's so like secluded from the rest of the stadium that you're ne- you never have to interact with, you know, the peasants, the regular people. And, and get this, the VVIP, it has the best food, slow-cooked lamb shoulder and marinated tuna steak and a buffet of desserts. And get this, it's the only place in the stadium where you can actually be served alcohol. Guess who gets to sit in the VVIP? The Emir of Qatar. The king. And you see, in Christmas, we find a God who comes as a mighty king. But he comes unlike any king the world has ever known. He does not come as a VVIP. He came as a nobody from a forgotten place. He didn't come from Rome or even Jerusalem. He came from Nazareth. He did not come in strength, but he came in weakness. He came as a little child, and he did not come wearing a crown of glory. But he came wearing a crown of thorns. Why? Here's why. Because despite all of our resistance to him, despite all of our rebellion against him, despite the fact that we wanted nothing to do with him, he wanted everything to do with us. And so he came as a warrior God to defeat evil and sin. But instead of killing us, he killed himself. Instead of bringing judgment, 
He came to bear it. And you see, friends, that is why there is hope for the world. Christmas says one day God is going to bring evil to account. And that is why there is hope for you and me. Because Christmas says if you were in Christ, that judgment has already taken place. It has been poured out no matter who you are, no matter what you have done in this room. It has been poured out on Jesus so that it will never be poured out on you. And that is the hope of Christmas and it's the hope of this table. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17 says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. And in his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. You know what this means? This table means that God does not merely tolerate you. Some of you think that's, that's as far as God can get. No, this table says God loves you. He delights in you. He sings over you with rejoicing. And he does it all because of what his, done, his son has done for you. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant, which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, what hope we find at this table. Hope for the world and hope for us. That you are a God who sees us to the bottom and you know everything about us and yet you have come into this world for us. You have come into this world because of your great love for us and you have made a way for us to know you, to be loved by you and to live in light of all that you have done for us. Would you help us to believe these things as we eat and drink together today? In Christ's name, amen.